welcome to the Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller podcast. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, as always, is my intrepid co-host, Lieutenant Chris Tashu. I'm here. I have to go use the bathroom on the first floor. This month, we are looking at the first three episodes from the second season of Barney Miller, Doomsday, which has the ominous release date of September 11th, 1975, The Social Worker from September 18th, 1975, and The Layoff from September 25th, 1975. Like clockwork, every week these episodes are coming out. That was uh, the time and place when stuff like that happened, right? Consistent, high-quality television content. We got a really solid crew on these things. Each one of these written by the same, or at least credited to the same three people, Danny Arnold, Chris Hayward, and Arn Sultan, and all three of these directed by Gnome Pitlick. And Gnome, he directs, I would say, 90% of the episodes this season. I mean, there's something to be said for consistency in the director's chair. Definitely. I mean, we kind of saw that with uh, Kolchak and the way that maybe some of that inconsistency in both the writing and the directing maybe gave us some less than optimal episodes. Less than optimal is a nice way of putting it, yeah. A lot less than optimal. We should talk about the new opening song and new opening credits, because they are different. They're completely different, actually. Both of them are completely different. Except for the fact that apparently they couldn't find Barbara Barry to do anything else, so they just reused her footage from the first season. The opening with Barney is very familiar. Like, I think we we might see this in other seasons of him starting to go up the steps to the 12th precinct. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad that they changed out that Wojo footage for you. That one him doing karate was so great. So, oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought that you would have been excited to see Wojo in some new duds. I just like how 70s it is. It's like the freeze frame at the beginning. Like, it's perfect. It's exactly what I expect when I think of a show like this. The freeze frame from the first season seemed like it was footage from the episodes, and this seems like these are just, like, character introductions. Especially the Ron Glass and Jack Sue thing, where it's just like, hey... Which they finally get their own intro. Hey, we're two actors hanging out here. Let's smile. It's a pretty different intro, but not in a bad way. I definitely think they've kind of found their footing a little bit. The theme is getting closer to what I recognize, but the horn solo is different than what I remember. The I mean, it's very iconic. Let's just put it that way. It's definitely different than the first season. We talked a lot in the last episode about the importance of guest stars And I think that these three episodes really speak to that quite a bit. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%, especially this first episode. Well, it was so great seeing Steve Landsberg here as Father Paul. And at first I was like, oh, is this the introduction of Dietrich? Is he just in here pretending to be a priest? Is he undercover? No, no, he's a criminal in this episode. (laughs) I just like his voice. I mean, I hadn't really seen him in a whole lot of other things. His voice is amazing. Yeah, I would like him to just narrate my life. I'd like to point out, because they took such umbrage with it in the episode, 
you can take those Bibles from hotels. Mm-hmm. That's actually what they're for. That's what the Gideons do. Yeah, is for you to take the Bible with you. Though I'm very curious how he got the one Bible that's in Hebrew. I mean, I figure that's got to be the just the Old Testament. That was a pretty interesting little uh, little joke from our good friend William Wyndham, who plays the dynamite-toting, disgruntled man of the episode. We talked a little bit with some of the most recent episodes about how are they shooting this? Is it in front of a live studio audience? There is no audience. Or if there was one, they replaced everything because this is classic laugh track. The applause that comes up when William Wyndham comes in is just like, why are you guys applauding this guy? I don't know who he is, but he gets like Kramer level applause. In the first season of the show, we noticed the laugh track, and obviously that's in kind of integral part into the show. But yeah, this season, it is just already it's becoming a little much. Laugh tracks for no reason, I guess. You know, I, uh, William Wyndham, sure. For whatever reason, in the third episode, the laugh track hit me so hard because I'm a huge fan of MASH, and there is one goofy-ass laugh that's on the MASH uh, laugh track, and that same goofy-ass laugh was on that laugh track in that third episode. So I'm just like, okay, yep, for sure. I know pretty much what sound library you bought this from. <laughs> yeah, they're using they're using the very stock one that all of the TV in the 70s and 80s were using, apparently. Wait, waiting for a Wilhelm-esque scream, I guess, is pretty much the closest comparison but the weird thing is that the timing, so like the, the timing of, you know, like I'm, I'm picturing like, okay, was there an applause sign for Wyndham coming in or was this all stock? Because there's a line, sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over the place. I think it's in, it's in the second episode. There is a moment where Fish is on the phone and he's giving like one liners one, one after another, but he's waiting for the laughter to die down. Day old bakery. <laughs> what do you got laying around that says happy birthday, Bernice? He seems like he's literally genuinely reacting to laughter that's happening on that sound stage. So I'm like, is this a mix? Are they doing half and half with laugh track and not laugh track? Or are they 80? Well, no, I guess they couldn't ADR out the laugh track, could they? Not really. Cause when they do that, it just gets really funky. Like when you watch those clips of friends without the laughter. We want you to speak to a psychiatrist. You don't understand. Ugh, this is so silly. Um, this is all just because of a sandwich. A sandwich? Yeah. Uh, you see, my, my sister makes these amazing turkey sandwiches. Her secret is she puts a, an extra slice of gravy-soaked bread in the middle. I call it the moist maker. I put my sandwich in the fridge over here. And <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I, I believe I ate that. You ate my sandwich? 
Yeah, that was that was weird. I did notice that as well. I was like, wait, what? Like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm wondering if they're just sweetening things with the laugh track. I think that's probably what it is, like pumping it in a little bit. That kind of makes sense. Because, I don't know, maybe the audience wasn't particularly, uh, you know, enthusiastic. But, you know, it could have been like the William Wyndham fan club was there and they just had to go nuts. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> his whole family was there. Super excited. I do like his character. I felt like his conclusion of his storyline in the episode felt fell a little flat. I'm not sure how else they might have concluded it. I was almost hoping Barney was going to take that dynamite vest and just hit the button himself and see that it was fake. But that's what I was expecting, too. And then that's not that's not what happened, obviously. But no, it was just kind. it kind of fell really flat. So I think we're getting to the point where I'm starting to recognize the patterns now as far as there being like an A, B and C story here. We've got the A story of William Wyndham coming in as George Weber, who's wearing a dynamite vest and wants to blow up the precinct unless they arrest the what is it? The governor, the mayor and the city council. We've got the B story of Father Paul, who's the Steve Landisberg character, who is the first person we see arrested, coming in and being booked. And he is being accused by Wojo of being a fake preacher because he's carrying around all these Bibles and he's trying to sell these Bibles. And then we get the C story, which is the plumbing being out in the station. And that is... Good for last from both J.J. Barry as the plumber, and then also really focuses on fish. Like I've said before, and I'll say it again, Abe Vigoda is my favorite part of the show. So anytime he is given, not the spotlight, but he's given more to do than some of the others. I, you know, I do notice that it does seem to be Barney and Fish and Wojo, and everybody else is really sidelined. And I think that's probably going to be, I mean, we know that Jack Sue ends up passing away. Not pretty quick, but, you know, he will be passing away during the run of the show, and Gregory Sierra will be leaving the show as well. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense in a way, because they weren't exactly being overutilized anyways. Jack Sue doesn't look very healthy in these episodes. No, he does not. He sure does not. I know that he died of cancer, but I don't know what kind of cancer. I'm wondering if it had anything to do with his liver, because his eyes look really jaundiced. Yeah, he doesn't look great. But here's the thing. I mean, he's on the show for another two more years. You know, he's it's not like, you know, he's one or two episodes away from passing away. For some reason, he doesn't look great. He looks tired. But overall, I thought it was a good episode. It was a good opening episode for the season. It reminded me a little bit of the one where the guy comes in and brings the... Doesn't he bring a bomb to the station? That's right. That's the that's the experience episode. He leaves it, and then they figure out it's the bomb. Yeah, he might have been the mad bomber of the city, if memory serves. It's very similar to that. I wasn't a big, big fan of the way the episode concluded, but everything else outside of that was great. We're really starting to get this... This is New York in 1975 vibe coming in, especially with the third one. But even with the second episode, The Social Worker, which is a weird name for this episode because now Liz has a job. And I'm not sure if she had a job before, but now she has a job and she's a social worker. So this episode is... I thought she was just a social worker from the get-go. It could be. They never mentioned what she did. 
God, I hope I don't say that. And Chris is like, no, no, of course. And no, 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 no. Like when they said she was a social worker, I was like, when did they introduce this? Or th- is this it? Just like all of a sudden there's a random detective walking around in the precinct. That was so weird. Like he reminded me of Mr. Poopy Butthole from, <laughs> from, uh, I've been here the whole time. Hey, fish. Don't you know me? Hey, Liz. Oh, and by the way, this is Art Metrano's only appearance on the show. Hey, Mike. How are you? It's so good to see you, Mike. Oh, wow. I love you, Mike. How How's the wife and kids? <laughs> Ooh-wee. Yeah, it's super bizarre. Don't try to make this guy a thing. Because, like, he's not a thing. Did you recognize Art Metrano? Uh, no. He was the leader of the Choppers in one of your favorite episodes of Kolchak the Night Stalker. Oh, great. Yeah, he's yep. he's the guy the that the uh, the headless biker is coming after at the end. And did you recognize Alex Henteloff as Harold Polanski? He has such a distinct voice, but I don't know him from anything. You actually saw him a few months ago. That experience episode I was talking about, he was in that. He shows up as a lawyer, Arnold Ripner, and then he will come back as that Arnold Ripner character several more times throughout the season. But for whatever reason, in this one, he's Harold Polanski, the forger. That's super weird. He's pretty integral to the plot of this episode. Also, James Gregory returns as Inspector Luger again, much to my chagrin. Worst character in the show, period, the end. He's drunk all the time. He has to be. You are not going to be a happy man because, yeah, he becomes like pretty much part of the cast. Oh, God. He's like a drunkard. Like, I'm, I know James Gregory more than likely wasn't drunk, but his character just acts drunk. And his whole like weird thing against Polish people when Wojo won't sell him the baseball. I don't know how I feel about that. I felt a little tone deaf. Like, why are you going to, like, really, like, that's, that's the, that's where we're going with this show. Like, come on. Because he's the only one who's done it so far. He seems to have a real problem. Because they could go for that joke in the third episode, but they don't do it. He's got a weird thing against Polish people. And he wants that baseball. Real bad. Yeah, so strange. So I'm trying to remember what all of the angles were in this one. For sure, there's... The Harold Polanski story, which is him passing bad checks, and he is an expert forger, and he eventually starts signing autographs from famous people, and that plays into the baseball story. There's the baseball story, which also kind of plays into the Nathan Levine story, which is this old numbers runner. And that was the only part of this where I liked Luger, because he had this history with this Nathan Levine character. But other than that, Luger just doesn't add anything. And then I guess the third story is the whole thing about the social work thing. And I was saying as far as like this playing into 1975, when they say that her client is living over in the South Bronx, South Bronx. South Bronx. The South, South Bronx. South Bronx. I had to do a whole lot of research on this for an episode we did about Wolfen. The South Bronx is like. Uh, it was like this burned out, like the buildings were falling down. It looked like, it looked like another world. Like seeing these shots in Wolfen, I was just like, is this for real? There's no way that New York looked like this, but it did. It was a complete shithole. Yeah. I mean, you know, that I think it's a lot of, uh, 
not hard for reference, but I think it is hard for American audiences now watching this, contemporary audiences watching this, understanding that. At this point in 2020, South Bronx is probably gentrified into the ground, so... Exactly. She's going over to Dumbo to some new denim and some uh, some, some free-range coffee. Yeah, American Apparel, dude. You know, like there's a there's an Urban Outfitters in South Bronx. Like, yeah, no, it's it's one of, it's one of those things where it is, you know, again that that we we have no frame of reference for that. But like you said, yeah, I had to look into it as well. And you know, I understand Barney's trepidation, but like uh, again, also a little tone deaf in 2020. My wife is a social worker. We would watch the evening news together. And there would be a shooting in Detroit, and she'd be like, oh, I was just there two days ago. And that would happen <sighs> so often where it was just like, oh, yeah, I have a client that lives about a block away from there. And after a while, I'm just like, you have to stop telling me. You have to stop telling me this stuff. So she just doesn't tell you anymore? One thing is that she doesn't see that type of client too much anymore. Gotcha. And the other thing is, yeah, we haven't really watched the news together that much either, so... <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. And since COVID, she doesn't go out at all and see anybody. She has to do it all via the phone. Well, there you go. So it Makes me feel hey, a lot better. Just think what Elizabeth Miller would be up to in COVID. There you go. I forgot there's another story going on in here, which is Chano and the IRS. That was that was this one, right? I mean, it's so minor. Honestly, some of like the C-plot lines are so minor that you could put them in any of the episodes, essentially. They might have just had a running list in the writer's room. All right, what can we do in this episode? All right, Chano's going to bitch about the IRS. Of the three episodes, I like the first one the most. This one is okay, but it doesn't really do anything too unique or exciting with the setup, the, the framework, the structure of these episodes as we've kind of come to expect them. I will be honest, I laughed out loud a few times at the layoff episode. One of those laughs was... 100% inappropriate. I was amazed that they went there with this joke. And in 2020, I guess they would probably maybe still make the joke, but man, oh man, the name of the episode is The Layoff. 1975, New York City, city's running out of money. The famous headline, Ford, New York City, drop dead. You know, there is no support for New York. It's just going in the shitter. So there's all these layoffs. They gotta have some young blood on the job. Well, then how are they gonna decide who uh, goes and who stays? Don't, don't you? They got a guy downtown who's gonna be saying "Eeny, meeny, miny, mo." That means I'm next. <laughs> oh, so inappropriate and so funny to me. No, but I'm glad the show did go there. Then, I mean, again, that's kind of what I expected from the show. I was so glad that he had such a good laugh line in this. Well, I mean, I, I love Ron Glass. I mean, he's one of my favorite parts of the show. He's a fantastic actor. And again, him and Jack Sue don't seem to be given a whole lot in the show, unfortunately. They really do play second fiddle to everybody else. Though Jack Sue has a great moment when the layoffs actually do come, and it's Chano, Wojo, and Harris are the ones being uh, laid off. And as they're getting the, I need your gun and your badge from uh, Barney, Yamada just breaks into the room. You would not believe the funny thing I just heard. <laughs> and then they all look at him and it's like, not the moment. Your timing is off. But hey, Bob Dishy is in this episode. Yeah. 
our friend from uh, uh, Mr. Dreams for Sale. Yeah, Mr. Shakespeare himself. He's got such a great face. I love his face. I would agree. I also think, I mean, he's really good in this episode as the scummy lawyer. Well, I liked him. I really liked Oliver Clark as the fur thief. And I really like Candace Azara as Miss Lamada, who just has a weird thing, like her stabbing somebody. And she just doesn't seem to realize that it was wrong at all. And her and the fur thief fall in love through the bars. And they're going to meet back every Christmas. Super weird. <laughs> I mean, that's what I like about the show is it does seem to have this weird sense of humor. Oh, yeah. And she's got this kind of strange look on her face a lot of times. She's got like this a little bit off voice. Um, she was in one of my favorite movies, which is Pandemonium, the Alfred Soul film. It is really off. But um, yeah, she's she's great in it. The whole movie's great. You're given a lot more storylines in this episode than the last two. And they all kind of coalesce together right at the end. More so than I feel like in some of the other episodes we've seen. I do feel like the conclusion, though, of the, the, the final conclusion of the episode where they all magically get their jobs back and the post credit scene is a, is a little lame. But it's also a sitcom from 75, so everything has to return back to normal. No, no changes made for the characters. That always reminds me of Lisa Simpson, who's just like, well, don't worry. Everything will be back to normal in 30 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that and that joke is so on. It's too on the nose for its own good, essentially, because it really just you know undercuts all of these kinds of shows, because that's the ultimate problem with sitcoms is, you know, especially traditional sitcoms. I mean, sitcoms now with stuff like Modern Family uh, stuff like that, they have a kind of a, a long-running storyline. But yeah, I mean, originally these kinds of shows, like the season opens with no fanfare, the season closes with no fanfare, and there's no overarching story. Every episode is a standalone episode. Right. Yeah, there's no bad wolf or anything that's going to... But hey, there is the fact, and we forgot to mention it at the top of the episode, instead of referring to him as Max Gale, he's now Maxwell Gale. Yeah, very, uh, very professional now. Which is weird. Because, you know, he doesn't go by Maxwell Gale. <laughs> he goes by Max Gale on, like, everything. I just have to ask, hashtag, where's Mike? He was there. He was so part of the precinct. I mean, I remember all those episodes he was in in the first, ep in the first season. And now he's <laughs> just gone. He's gone again forever. And he never comes back because they were trying to shoehorn in a random... I just have no idea. They don't even address that character at all. Like, they don't address why he's there. He's just, like, hanging out in the precinct. Why? Where'd he come from? <laughs> like, everybody knows him. It's really a sticking point. It's like that, um, it, like you said, Mr. Poopy Butthole, or in The Simpsons, that, like, the, the rad, the rad version of Bart from the Poochie episode. You're trying to make, like, a cool character, like, a, a quirky character, because it's like, oh, you press all the soap back together. Like, what in the fuck are you talking about? That was so strange. You see? You save all the little pieces. And after about a year, you, you melt them together, and you get a whole new bar of soap. <laughs> oh, nice to see you again, Mike. Yeah, even Barbara Barry's like, I'm out of here. I'm beyond out of here. I don't want anything to do with this guy. I do want to know why Abe Vigoda's character of Fish is married to his wife, though. Yeah, he is just not happy at all in that marriage. 
No, and I want to, they, they're going to have to, I, I don't know, because I haven't really looked ahead to when we start talking about fish, but I wonder if it's the same actress, because we know it's going to be Abe Vigoda. And I also wonder if he's going to treat her in that show the way he treats her in this show, because who would want to watch that if that's what was going on in the spinoff show? Like, that would just be, I mean, like, that's the thing about Fish is I like his character aside from the kind of, like, shithead way he treats his wife. Because it it feels way too, it, see, it feels even more played up than a show should be doing. Do you know what I mean? We talked about this before, the, you know, the Al Bundy thing. And it's, you know, it's very much in that vein. And it's just like, no, like, this exaggeratedness is like, it's not even, it's not funny. It's just, like, kind of bizarre, frankly. Yeah, because I guess we forgot to say in the second episode is the one where he is having memory problems. And and he forgets her birthday. <laughs> he f- forgets her own name at times. He forgot her name. That's what brought it up. And that he forgot a doctor's appointment. And then, yeah, as Barbara Barry's leaving, she's like, oh, I'm so sad that I missed Bernice's birthday yesterday. And then he's like, oh, shit, I did, too. And it's like, oh, man, dude, you're... No, no. He can't even remember his anniversary date, but he can remember the serial number on his gun. Uh, Again, I like the character of Fish. He's my favorite character on the show. But there's something to be said for not over overdoing it. You don't have to, like, really punch it up that he hates his wife. And if he hates his wife, then just get divorced, dude. (laughs) Don't adopt, like, 12 kids because that's where where this is going or running a halfway home or whatever the hell direction. Because that's what Fish is, right? It's like a halfway home or he runs like a halfway home or something. I don't remember one episode of it. I think that's what the show is, is him and his wife adopt a bunch of, like, street children. Well, I mean, that seems like the natural for a spinoff from Barney Miller. Right? Yeah. Yeah, clearly. I mean, at least with Enos, when he spun off of Dukes of Hazard, he had his own, like, I'm going to the big city and I'll be a detective there kind of thing. I just like the name Enos. Big Enos. Little Enos. Look, I mean, A Pagoda, as far as I'm concerned, and how Lyndon carry the show on their back, and whenever they're given the most to do out of anyone, these episodes really hit their stride. But again, you do have very talented actors that aren't given a lot to do, and it's unfortunate. Is that the police coming to get you right now? Yeah, they're coming to get you, Bob. Barbara Barry. A grumpy New York cop and his wife adopt five rowdy foster children. That's not what I want, and I don't think that's what anyone wants wants at all so but for the record same actress plays his wife so that's what we have to look forward i see a lot of jokes about women using the bathroom too much like being in the bathroom for too long oh there's just so many i gotta shave and get to work that's a level of humor i mean with the the bernice jokes i mean yeah okay you say like oh apparently you've never been married before like there's little jokes that you can do but yeah, he seems to just hate her from some of the comments that he makes. Legitimately hates her. It's not like I'm like offended by it or anything. It's just it, it sometimes it's it's a little too much. Like do something about it then. <laughs> you hate your wife so much, then do something about it. Like no one's forcing you to stay married to your wife. And I'm curious if they have kids. Like nobody's mentioned having kids. I mean, other than Barney we know has kids, but nobody else. I mean, I don't even know if Yamana has a wife. 
I mean, we'll maybe we'll see that. I mean, again, we've barely even seen outside of the precinct. Yeah, we're 16 episodes into how many did we figure? Like 140 something. <laughs> something to that effect. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot. I think it's even more than that because it's like 22 to 25 episodes for the next seven years. I mean, that's, I mean, again, that's the thing in my mind is like, I, I like that the episode and the show is very much like a bottle show, but at some point I would assume they're going to get a bigger budget. They're going to get more diverse storylines that can't just take place inside the precinct, or maybe it will only be in the precinct, but I just don't see that happening. Well, when they start adding all the special effects and stuff, that's kind of when the show goes downhill. (laughs) When Abe Vigoda turns into a Transformer and starts zipping around the room, that's when the show really hits its stride. Bonnie, she wouldn't touch my dipstick. (laughs) Bonnie, I'm forgetting everything. I'm going to use this telephone. lot to look forward to with the second season of this show. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to diving in. So, Chris, what is going on with you in your real world? Uh, Just, uh, you know, podcasting and podcasting and, oh, podcasting, podcasting and podcasting and uh, and podcasting. So that's it. And if you want to know about the podcast that I'm on other than this one, find me on Twitter at casualty underscore Chris. What about you? What's going on in the world of Mike White? Podcasting, but not nearly as much as you, sir. That's because you have a brain. (laughs) I'm over at the Projection Booth Podcast, and uh, every week putting out a new episode or two. I've been looking at the schedule for October, and I've got a bunch of stuff that's all ready to be cut and put out there as special episodes. So October's going to be 31 Days of Horror. <laughs> Whoa, dude, crazy! You too? <laughs> oh my God. It's October. It's true. Hey, that's my... Mine's a horror, Dover. <laughs> it's pretty bad. 31, 31 days, days of horror. Horrorween. Horrorween sounds like a weird dick. It does. I don't know. All those things are really lame. But uh, yeah, October's coming up on the Culture Cast, too. And we're going to have a lot of uh, interesting movies we're going to be talking about. I can tell you that much. Thank you so much to John Walker for composing our theme. I should talk to John and see if he wants to change it up a little bit for season two. And thank you so much to everybody for listening. Please head on over to iTunes to rate and review the show and make sure that you say Chris is a fantastic co-host. He does not want to be forgotten when ratings start coming in for this show. 